So this evening I'd like to can you turn it down? I'd like to speak around the themes of aloneness and interconnectedness. And I'd like to begin by telling you a story from the time of King Arthur and Camelot. And there was a time when King Arthur heard that there was a particularly cruel night terrorizing the countryside, pillaging and plundering and violent and really all the things a good knight wasn't supposed to do. So King Arthur set off to confront this knight and to try and guide him into the path of righteousness or else to eliminate him. And one of these epic knightly battles took place, but as it turned out, the villainous knight was stronger than King Arthur. And eventually got King Arthur on the ground with his sword at his throat. And as was the custom in that time in knightly etiquette and chivalry, they had certain rules they had to go by. So lying on the ground with the sword at his throat, King Arthur asked for quarter, which in case you don't know, that means he asked for his life to be spared. And as required, <laughs> as required, the villainous knight had to listen. And he responded by saying, I will spare your life if you bring to me the answer to one question. And if you don't bring the right answer, I'm going to kill you. So King Arthur vowed to do his utmost. And he asked, what is the question? And the villainous knight said, I want to know what women most desire. <laughs> said, I want to know what in their deepest hearts a woman most longs for. <laughs> and the villainous knight told King Arthur, you've got 12 months. <laughs> you've got a year, which most guys would think this is a pretty short time, right? <laughs> anyway, he was told you've got 12 months. And if you can bring me the answer to this question, your life will be spared. And if you don't bring me the right answer, I'm going to cut off your head. Anyway, this goes on to be a very, very long story, and I could just tell the story and forget about the talk. But <laughs> <laughs> it goes on to be a very, very long story. I'm offering the abridged version. Right? So King Arthur goes off, scouring the countryside asking one woman after another, what does a woman most desire? What do you most long for in your deepest heart? And of course, he got a lot of different answers. One woman told him it's love, another told him family, another told him courtship, another told him status, another told him safety. But King Arthur actually knew these weren't the answers he sought for. So he heard about this one unlikely wise woman hanging out somewhere. <laughs> and he was told, 
She knows the answer. So he went and he found this unlikely wise woman. And she said to him, he asked her the question, what do women most long for? And she made a deal. <laughs> she said, if you make me queen, I'll tell you the answer. <laughs> so King Arthur, there's a lot at stake here, right? <laughs> King Arthur promised, he promised that he would indeed make her queen if it was the right answer. So she whispered the answer in his ear. So he returned. The villainous knight was waiting one year later, and King Arthur stood his ground. And at first he teased the villainous knights with all the wrong answers. Not a good idea, actually, in, <laughs> in the circumstances. But he teased the villainous knights with all these answers he'd heard. And the villainous knight drew his sword. He said, you haven't brought me the right answer. I'm going to cut off your head. And King Arthur said, rather smartly, he said, I know the answer to what a woman most desires, what she longs for in her deepest heart. And the villainous knight all ears said, you know, what is it? What is it? And King Arthur said, it is sovereignty. It is sovereignty. And in the face of this answer, the villainous knight acknowledged defeat. So the story's kind of long, but it brings me to what I actually wanted to talk about this evening. <laughs> that one of the core teachings in this tradition, and one of the core teachings in the path of liberation, it runs through the Satipatthana Sutta, which describes the practice we're doing here. It runs throughout the whole of the teaching is the Buddha's encouragement for us all to discover and to understand what it means to abide independent, not governed by anything. What sovereignty means to us. What it means to reclaim our heart and our freedom. And this teaching about abiding independent not governed by anything, not leaving, leaning on anything. It's a teaching of liberation which, which sits alongside an equally core teaching that runs through the whole of this path and tradition. And that other core teaching is the truth of interconnectedness, the truth of interdependence that speaks about our intrinsic relatedness to all things, all people, to nature, to all lives. And to me, these two core teachings of interdependence and of sovereignty or independence, that first they can seem very polarized, but in my understanding, it's a polarization that we're asked to reconcile. And in reality, these two teachings are really wedded and woven together.
Nusargadatta once said, wisdom teaches me I am nothing and love teaches me I am everything. Now, what did the Buddha mean by abiding independent? Now, this word independence, because it's very important to understand how it's used. It, it's not seen in isolation, but it's seen in the context of abiding independent, not governed by anything. And it is the not governed part that really speaks to aloneness, a capacity to be alone and yet not lonely. It speaks to our capacity to be upright. And it is the not governed that is really kind of the measure of that uprightness, aloneness, or sovereignty. The independent, not governed by anything, is really speaking to a quality of inner wholeness or freedom. And on many levels to understand, I think, that wholeness, which is a, that sense of aloneness and completeness, I think it, 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 in some ways it, it invites an inquiry, it invites an investigation for us to ask in ourselves who in this, who or what in this moment is really the gatekeeper of our heart. Who or what is the gatekeeper of our hearts just now? Who is the who or what seems to be the gatekeeper of our happiness, our freedom, our capacity to live our lives in a true and an authentic way? And I think this is a question that is truly an investigation. It's it's an invitation. But you know, you may have experienced here over these days that the clues to where the gatekeeper is is not they're not always difficult to find. Sometimes the clue to the gatekeeper of our hearts is in the authority that events or people, experiences from the past continue to hold over us. Sometimes the gatekeeper of our hearts are the feelings that we have at times of being governed by <clears throat> habitual tendencies or reactions, uh, habitual reactions of fear or self-judgment or envy or the, the uh, tyranny of the ideal of perfection. Sometimes if we want to know who the gatekeeper, who or what is the gatekeeper of our hearts, we could reflect on the things that we might fear or obsess about or resist or feel ill will towards. It's the moments and the t places where we hear ourselves thinking, I would be happy if only, if only I were different, if you were different, if my life was other than it is. We might think I would be happy or free if you would only accord to me the respect or the uh, understanding that I need. The gatekeeper of our hearts may be found in the most troubled and conflicted relationships in our lives 
but also in the relationships where there is the greatest love too. Sometimes the gatekeepers of our hearts are, are much more mundane <laughs> and even embarrassing. <laughs> you know, we say, I would be happy if only I had a different pillow, you know, a, <laughs> a different roommate. If I was warmer, if I had different food, if, you know, sometimes really embarrassing, isn't it? The if and the if only are very powerful words of forgetfulness. I would be happy if, I would be peaceful if, I would be free if. I think the if and the if only are very, very powerful words of forgetfulness. And they're born really of forgetting that although, of course, we are impacted by so many conditions in this life that we simply cannot control, conditions that can be sad, conditions that can be lovely, adversity and joy, the reality perhaps remains that the source of true joy and sorrow lies in our own hearts that the source of true freedom or feelings of imprisonment really lies in our own hearts. The teaching of abiding independent, not governed by anything, we're encouraged to remember, to remember that it might be truly possible to live, to abide in such a way, that it may indeed be possible for us to reclaim in a very immediate way, the keys to the prisons we sometimes find ourselves in, in our hearts and minds, that in a way we hold the key to our own hearts. You know, a couple of years ago when I was teaching in Cuba and the conditions were, were really, really difficult, almost like being back in India. <laughs> You know, except you had like this enormous bureaucracy. They just kept wanting to get in the way. And, and you know, the one of the people I was with, they inve he invented this mantra. He said, if I think something's going to work out, it might not. <laughs> if I think something's not going to work out, it could. And, you know, I, I looked at him one day. Uh, he was translating for me. And I said, Eduardo. You know, why are you smiling? Why? You know, his eyes were shining, his face was radiant, he had this big grin on his face. I said, why are you so happy? You know, I, <laughs> it's like, he, sa he says, I think this is what it feels like to be enlightened. He, sa he says, to not insist or demand, not insist upon or demand anything at all, to not count on anything. He says, I think this is what it might feel like <laughs> to be liberated. I think to remember the possibility of being ungoverned is a question that asks us to really look deeply into the places where, where we do have that feeling of being governed. And I think you all know what I'm talking about, the feeling of being governed, being bound. Because that, that question is like the, it's the first step to authenticity. It's the first step of returning to an unalienable freedom of our own hearts. 
You know, and we, we need to be careful with this word independence because we know that it can be used in a very unskillful way to, to justify uh, a lack of relatedness, you know, to justify disconnection even. You know, that we can feel when we're injured or fear being injured or when we are hurt or feel being hurt or are bruised, you know, by life or love or relationship. It's so easy to isolate ourselves and tell ourselves that we're independent, you know, that sense of I don't need anything or anyone. But we're building walls of defense and we're actually still governed. We're governed by those reactions and those fears. You know, sometimes I see that on retreat, you know, when a, a person will come, you know, and, and they're in total rebellion against the schedule, you know, and when everybody's sitting, they're walking, and everybody's walking, they're sitting, you know, and, you know, sometimes make this statement, well, I'm free, you know, I'm not going to be governed by a schedule. You know, I think, are you? Are you just not governed by your reaction to the schedule? So we need to be so careful about how we can kind of co-opt what, you know, Dharma vocabulary to justify something it's not meant to be. When we feel that sense of disconnection, we tend to think in terms of two, I, you, me, the world, me versus the world. But often it's, it, connectedness, although it's something we can long for so much, the deep sense of relatedness, it is also something we can actually fear a great deal too. Freud once said, we are never so defenseless against suffering as when we love. Because to really have that care and affection and love and sense of connection with all beings, it is to open our hearts. It is, in a way, to be vulnerable, to feel deeply, to have empathy, which is so much the heart of compassion, too, to have empathy with the world and with others. At times, it can almost feel as if the territory is just too big. We can be afraid of being crushed, afraid of being overwhelmed. We know that that fear and that vulnerability in our closest relationships with those that we hold dear. But even with the world of all beings who we don't know, it can feel at times like to, to open our hearts to the immensity of pain and sorrow and grief in this world. It would feel at times too hard and too much. But this is what we're asked to do in this path, to find a wise vulnerability, where we can feel that empathy, where we can have that sense of interconnectedness without being overwhelmed. What is the key that the Buddha taught to sovereignty, to this wise independence and freedom? Part of it is understanding that nothing really truly holds the power to govern our hearts, except our own 
fears and misunderstanding and confusion. But if I can continue with this theme that I've been kind of nagging you about all retreat, he really said the key to sovereignty lies within the reflection upon those few simple simple statements of this is not me, this does not belong to me, this is not who I am. It is a radical change around. The gatekeepers of our hearts are not only those who we fear or hate. The gatekeepers of our hearts can also be in those we love. And we do see the tendencies play out in much the same way. Do you notice how we obsess about people we hate and we obsess about people we love? It's kind of like an equal opportunity pattern. We, it goes anywhere. You know, it is not really the object. It is the tendency to obsess. It is the tendency to, to fear. It is the tendency to cling. You know, our hearts fall so easily into the extremes of liking and disliking, of loving and hating, of infatuation and ill will. And to know how to care and love wisely, I think, is probably one of the biggest tasks of our lives. To know how to love wisely without being governed is probably one of the most deep invitations of freedom in our lives. And it seems almost impossible task. But it's also asked for what, uh, what we're asked to discover. You know, I remember there was a time in my own, you know, as a mother, there was a time in my own life, you know, I do what all mothers do, you know, you know, children are right, you know, they're happy, or they, and of course no child is always happy. You know, and I really remember so clearly that moment when I just saw so clearly that there are limits to my power to guarantee my children's happiness. That was quite a liberation. <laughs> Suddenly, it certainly doesn't mean not caring. It certainly doesn't mean being as generous and accessible and available and supportive as can be, and yet knowing even within that there are powers, there are limits to all of our power to guarantee another's happiness and well-being. This is, in truth, the practice of equanimity. To know how to love, but how also not to hold, not to grasp, even to those we love as being me and mine and belonging to me. And here we are not just speaking about our lovers and our enemies holding the key to our happiness. But really, the place where we give away that happiness and freedom is often clinging, actually, to our love and hate. It is not the people. It is holding to our love and hate that divides this world into friends and enemies. We could say, I think, that this habit of seeing so much in our lives as me and belonging to me and who I am it's probably, you know, the most unexamined habit in our lives. But it is that the effect of that habit is to make us forgetful. 
You know, we entirely forget, for example, in our grand, you know, tornadoes of, you know, infatuation or dislike, we quite, we entirely forget about impermanence, about birth and death. Not only of those we fear or hold dear, but actually also of ourselves. And that all the intensity of our love and ill will will, you know, at some point be just a memory. We can forget in the midst of liking and disliking, being for and against the possibilities of our own heart to be free, to be ungoverned, because it's where we surrender that sovereignty. We are being governed. Now, of course, there are many people who say it's really quite crazy not to grasp and cling you know, what would give meaning to our lives, what would get us out of bed in the morning, you know, what would make us someone. But actually, we are so encouraged to practice this because it's about being sane in an increasingly insane world at times where it's so governed and fractured by ever-escalating degrees of this is me, this is mine, this belongs to me between communities and faiths and countries. Sometimes we have the idea that we have our own villainous night within us, you know, and sometimes we have this idea that the villainous night within us is this entity we call self that has this unfortunate habit of clinging. And sometimes we have the idea that if we could somehow subdue that villainous night, if we could subdue the self, we would eradicate clinging. I think this is wrong view. I think it's wrong view. It's a view that keeps us, can keep us deeply stuck, stuck in our practice and in our life. Because if we believe that the villainous night is something to subdue, you know, we, we just get into uh, the quite endless eternal project of improving ourselves. Or the other extreme that many people in practice get into is shouting at themselves to let go. It always sounds really kind of ridiculous. Myself is shouting at myself to let go. Rather than questioning who is clinging. Rather than questioning who is clinging. Who is it? It's grasping. It's a good question. How can we possibly improve and alter a self that actually doesn't have any independent self-existence apart from what's being taken hold of as a description? It's a misguided view, but that view of kind of like, you know, this, this kind of villainous night that needs to be subjugated leads to all these other views, a proliferation of views of self-judgment and blame. We can even blame ourselves for being an unworthy person because we cling so much. That's a mind-boggler. What I think we start really to see in the practice, that this whole thing of clinging and selfing, these are just two different words for the same process. It's not like I cling. Clinging is selfing. Selfing is clinging. They're born, arise, born, and die together. They arise and pass together. They're just different names for the same impulse. 
the same impulse, the same process. And it, it's a process that can really be seen and felt. You know, it's really important to get that sense of, you know, how whenever there is that contracting and clinging, there is selfing, there is a kind of sense of me being born in that moment, you know, you know, happy, sad, or whatever, whatever me happens to be born. Reclaiming the sovereignty of our hearts is also a process. It's not a miracle, you know. It's a process and a path of exploring all of those moments where we get into that sense of being governed, you know. And it's, it's so often articulated in those words of, you know, this belongs to me, this is who I am, this is me. Mary Oliver has a wonderful poem. It's called The Buddha's Last Instruction. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two solid trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward. It thickens and settles over the fields. Around him, the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs, disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly, I'm not needed. Yet I find myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly, beneath the branches, he raised his head and looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Now, what would it be like to think of this every morning when we wake? To be a light unto ourselves. To be a refuge unto ourselves. And with that thought, to go into the world. Into the world that in every moment reveals to us its essential interconnectedness. To go into the world knowing that we are part of a mandala of interdependence, where every breath we breathe, every mouthful of food we eat, the clothes we wear, that we and the world live not as two, but in intimate relationships a widening mandala of relationship of all beings and all life. And that moment to moment we are shaping that world with each thought and word and act. And we are too being shaped by all that we see and hear and feel and touch. Now that interconnectedness can truly be a dance of possibility. A dance of possibility when it is liberated by no longer being governed by clinging or holding. 
a dance of possibility where moment to moment we learn to loosen that grasp and understand that we don't just practice for ourselves. We can't even awaken by ourselves. But we can, in that dance of possibility, learn to participate and be a participant in the awakening of life. We truly see that to transform our heart of the moment is to transform our world of the moment. <clears throat> David Grossman, he's a very much admired and respected Israeli writer, thinker, philosopher, who's very deeply committed to the peace process between Israel and the Palestinian people. And he had the really terrible experience of his son being killed in the last invasion of Lebanon. And in his shock and in his grief, he appealed to his government and to his people, saying, see the Palestinians, look at them just once, not through a rifle sights or through a roadblock, you will see a people no less tortured than we are. Speak to their deepest wounds, acknowledging their unending suffering. Look at this wretched nation, wretched nation, whose fate is bound up with our own. Our hearts will open just a little to each other, and that opening has great power. Simple human compassion has the power of a force of nature, precisely in a situation of stagnation and hostility. I think reclaiming our sovereignty is not something separate from deeply knowing our interconnectedness. It is, it is the same. But it's also acknowledging the sovereignty of others, the sovereignty of all beings, that nothing in this world exist really to serve our clinging. But from a place of wisdom and compassion, we are le learning the means to shape our world with wisdom and compassion, rather than being a participant in fracturing our world. We learn to listen to the cries of the universe, the cries of pain. And even all of those movements, you know, where we fracture and where there is grasping, where there is separation, where there is division, these too are cries of the universe. They are suffering that ask for compassion. It's such a hard practice to let go of division but I think it's a practice really worth committing ourselves to. It seems to me as long as there is division, there, as long as there is any kind of division, then we are still being governed. You know, I think one of the biggest practices of all time is to liberate our hearts from the power of ill will and fear, because these are probably the strongest forces of separating and dividing ourselves from others. Imagine what a practice it would be to actually commit ourselves to not entertaining even one moment, one thought of ill will or fear. It's kind of like the first precept, you know? It's kind of like the commitment 
to not harming, to protect the well-being of all life, including the well-being of our own hearts. And it's the invitation of the whole of the teaching. You know, interconnectedness, the teaching of interconnectedness and interdependence, it's not a philosophy, it's not a fine theory. I think it's a practice. And it's, we practice it in the places of greatest stagnation or hostility, just as this Israeli man had to do. Our relationships can be deeply complex. They can also be deeply simple when they are guided by the first precept. You know, Einstein, he once said, a human being is part of a whole called by us universe, a part limited in time and space. She experiences herself, her thoughts and feelings, as something separated from the rest, a kind of optical delusion of consciousness. And this delusion is a kind of prison for us, restricting us to our personal desires and to affection for a few persons nearest to us. Our task must be to free ourselves of this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of the liberation and a foundation for inner security. The optical delusion of consciousness, I love that. The optical delusion of consciousness to see ourselves as somehow apart and separate. The optical delusion of consciousness rooted in that, that contracting about this is me, this belongs to me, this is who I am. It's like a mirage seen in a desert. We are learning to surrender that optical delusion to be mindful rather than forgetful, to explore rather than to dismiss, to investigate rather than to assume, not to see the liberation, the sovereignty of our heart as a distant goal, but what it might mean for us moment to moment to liberate the moment, to liberate the moment. You know, I feel it's always so important to bring what seems like a very grandiose concept of liberation as this thing or noun or destination. This is a teaching of verbs. And it is about liberating the moment as a practice and as a path, something very, very accessible to us. Nagoshidam, he once said, when I no longer insist on being someone, I am free to be no one. A surrender in this illusion of separation does not leave a vacuum behind it. What is left in surrendering the illusion, the optical illusion, delusion, is in truth the living truth of interconnectedness and interdependence and also the living truth of sovereignty. That everything matters, that everything can be held dear, but nothing is claimed. I think it is a kind of ethical maturity. We understand that to harm our, myself is to harm another. To harm another is to harm my, myself. To care for another is to care for myself. The Buddha taught this, this in all of the teaching of, of loving kindness, of compassion, of wisdom. 
And it is all about coming into a deeper understanding of our nature and our place in the universe and the family of things to understand that separation never was true. And it is a fearful, sad place to live. And that is, that is the compassion, to understand that it embraces everything. The compassion embraces ill will. It embraces fear. It embraces all those moments of grasping and clinging because it all is all in that realm of dukkha, of suffering, that primarily asks only for our understanding and for the compassion that we can bring. Liberating the moment is really a journey of one moment at a time. I'd like to end with something from the Dalai Lama. He said, if we look at human history, we will find that a good heart has been the key in achieving what the world regards as great accomplishments in the fields of civil rights, social work, politics, liberation, and religion. A sincere outlook and motivation do not belong exclusively to the sphere of religion. They can be generated by anyone simply by having a genuine concern for others, for one's community, for the poor, for the needy. In short, they arise from taking a deep interest in and being concerned about the welfare of the larger community, that is, the welfare of others. Actions resulting from this kind of attitude and motivation will go down in history as good, beneficial, and a service to humanity. Today, when we read of such acts from history, although the events are in the past and have become only memories, we will still feel happy and comforted because of them. We recall with a deep sense of admiration that this or that person did a great and noble work. We also see a few examples of such greatness in our own generation. On the other hand, our history also abounds with stories of individuals perpetrating the most destructive and harmful acts, killing and torturing other people, bringing misery and untold suffering to large numbers of human beings. These incidents can be seen to reflect the darker side of our common human heritage. Such events occur only when there is hatred, anger, jealousy and unbounded greed. The world history is simply the collective record of the effects of the negative and positive thoughts of human beings. This, I think, is quite clear. By reflecting on history, we can see that if we want to have a better and happier future and present, we must examine our mindset now and reflect on the way of life that this mindset will bring about in the future. The pervasive power of the beneficial attitudes cannot be overstated. Just a moment quietly together. <clears throat>